Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Foreign Desk with Lisa Daftari podcast. We are inching closer to the election, and as if things couldn't get more interesting this year, alas, the news cycle does not disappoint. So grab the popcorn and let's get right into this. So now, as of last night, news broke that both the DNI and FBI are reporting that the Iran regime has found a way to meddle in U.S. elections. Iran has accessed voter information and has sent out emails claiming to come from the Proud Boys. Remember that right-wing group which became a point of contention during the first presidential debate? They're basically instructing Democratic voters in swing states like Florida, Arizona, and Pennsylvania to switch to the Republican Party and vote for President Trump. The email even threatened, I would take this seriously if I were you. So the DNI and FBI are reassuring us that nothing has changed, nothing has been compromised, and of course, Iran is denying any meddling at all. But for most Americans, this questions election safety. It raises the issue of foreign actors meddling and undermining our democracy. And it once again raises the 42-year-old question, what to do about Iran's regime? For the last 10 years or so, the what to do about Iran's regime boiled down to two choices in the foreign policy world. Do we strike a deal with Iran or not? So a deal was drawn up by the P5 plus one under a very eager President Obama. And in May of 2018, President Trump withdrew from that deal, calling it a meaningless piece of paper. Now, as we look toward two presidential candidates and an election less than 12 days away, again, two choices for president, two choices for Iran policy. Do we go back to the Iran deal or not? So I stand back and scratch my head a bit and ask, why do we limit our foreign policy on such a complex issue with such a myopic view? How can we narrow our scope to just a yes or no question? For years before that, we were stuck in a different dichotomy. It was to bomb Iran or let Iran get the bomb. Those were the two options, with Democrats giving the mullahs a lenient pass while certain individuals within the Republican Party stood their hawkish ground and wanted military action against Iran. So why is there new, no nuance in our strategy? It seems like regardless of the foreign policy dilemma, we're always trying to apply a one-size-fits-all approach to circumstances which are each so unique in nature. And speaking of unique, hold those thoughts right there. I wanna bring in our esteemed guest for today's discussion, someone who understands Iran, who understands strategy. It's the impressive Mr. Bijan Kian. Mr. Kian is a twice confirmed advisor to the White House under three consecutive administrations, reporting directly to Presidents Bush and Obama, and serving as the deputy lead on President Trump's landing team for the Office of Director of National Intelligence, also an Ellis Island Medal of Honor recipient, globally recognized expert on the economy and national security. Mr. Kian, I am so grateful that you're here with us today. I can't think of a more fitting expert as somebody who has been part of the DNI, somebody who understands Iran, and of course, a wonderful, brilliant expert like yourself. Welcome to the show. Good to be with you, Lisa, and your viewers. It's my pleasure, and uh, I'm humbled with that introduction. Looking forward to, uh, you know, uh, break open all these interesting subjects with you. And, you know, you, you said something about the denial in Farsi. As you know, we have uh, an old expression that says the wall of denial is very tall. So that's uh, that's no surprise. No Perfect. surprise coming yeah. from Tehran. 
Yes, perfectly put. So let's let's start out by taking a listen from uh, Director of National Intelligence John, John Radcliffe, uh, his briefing yesterday on Iran's involvement in sending out these emails. Let's take a listen and I want to get your reaction. We would like to alert the public that we have identified that two foreign actors, Iran and Russia, have taken specific actions to influence public opinion relating to our elections. First, we have confirmed that some voter registration information has been obtained by Iran and separately by Russia. This data can be used by foreign actors to attempt to communicate false information to registered voters that they hope will cause confusion, sow chaos, and undermine your confidence in American democracy. To that end, we have already seen Iran sending spoofed emails designed to intimidate voters, incite social unrest, and damage President Trump. Yeah, so let's start with this. What do you make of this news? Well, I think Moscow is coordinating with Tehran to meddle in U.S. elections for obvious reasons. We've all heard Javad Zarif, uh, foreign minister of Islamic Republic, uh, saying with it's just such a sweet smile that he has all the time that when he was serving in New York at the United Nations, he made friends with uh, elected officials who mm -hmm. were then representatives in the Senate. Uh, and when the reporter asked him, so like, uh, who? And he said, well, you know, some of them have grown into bigger, better, more powerful positions. And he said, uh, you're referring to Mr. Biden. And with that famous smile of his, uh, uh, his Excellency, the Foreign Minister, said, yes, Mr. Biden. So it's no surprise, no surprise that uh, Moscow would be coordinating this with Tehran and, you know, getting access to voter poll, you know, lists is not such a complicated thing. And then, of course, uh, sending those letters. And, you know, what's interesting to me is the, uh, you know, the big cry coming out that, you know, oh, you know, Director of National Intelligence is not an honest broker. And so what do you expect the Director of National Intelligence of the United States to do? Two countries have meddled, and we have proof of that, meddled in our election, so close to the election, it's a very tumultuous year. What do you expect the Director of National Intelligence to do? Not tell the American public that the world's top terror sponsor government in the world is together with Russia, because it's all coordinated, as you know, you know, they need that help. They need, you know, to make sure the servers are placed in countries where they would be difficult to trace. But thankfully, our country has capabilities that no other country has in the world. And uh, we have full visibility into all of uh, that which they wish they, we won't see. But we do see and we know. So you don't expect him to remain silent. Of course, he's doing a job. And it's coming out and saying this happened. So... You know, we'll see. Uh, we'll see what more comes out uh, from all all the interesting stories that are being developed. 
Right. And what's upsetting about this is that this is being seen as something coming out of the Trump administration. So it's not taken as seriously. And I liked what Director Radcliffe said at the end of his briefing, said, you know, this is a bipartisan issue. I mean, you know, when a foreign we're so divided that we're not willing to see meddling by a foreign actor as something that really goes against all Americans and has really disrupted our democracy versus something that's either a Trump or Biden issue. And to that end, you know, we had an article yesterday morning, it's, it's really interesting in terms of timing, um, published on the Foreign Desk on Iran seeking to influence um, people to vote for Biden and against Trump. And then a few hours later, this story broke and you have the, you know, a right, ultra right wing group um, telling people to vote for Trump. So people are seeing this as, wait a minute, you guys said that the Iranian regime was for Biden. Now it looks like he's for Trump. So how can we connect all these things? Well, you know, it's not too difficult, uh, Lisa, and you're an expert in this yourself. You've been watching these uh, uh, ups and downs of politics for a long time. Um, you know, what's happening is interesting. Uh, I'd like to say a few words about the calculation on the other side. In Tehran, if the popular belief is that, you know, we've been friends with Joe Biden for a long time, we knew him from his Senate days, he really thinks like us, and so forth, they're wrong. They're absolutely dead wrong. I don't want to give the impression that, uh, you know, there is a huge difference in national security between Republicans and, and Democrats. We have a bureaucracy in place and the bureaucracy works well most of the time. Sometimes it breaks down like any other bureaucracy, but most of the time it works well. And Tehran is wrong to think that they can get away too long with too much with any administration in the United States. We know too much about the intentions of the Islamic Republic. We know too much about their absolutely violent acts of terrorism around the world. And uh, I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's going to be a very, very good time for Tehran, regardless of what comes out of this election. And of course, you know, I, I still haven't changed my bet. I believe President Trump is going to win this election. And what if he does? What if he does? What is Tehran going to do then with this stellar, stellar record of, of shameful, shameful? You know, you're looking at a government that for the first time in history, the government has come to power through terrorism, through committing an act of terror. They took 52 Americans hostage and said, we're going to hold them until you give us some kind of a guarantee. And finally, on the 19th of January of 1980, uh, the court in Algiers was signed, and the first line of that court reads that the United States would never interfere in the affairs of the Islamic Republic in Iran. That's what they wanted. They, they took hostages to get that clause. And uh, this is the first time in history that a government has come to power by an act of terrorism and has maintained their power by continuing their support for global terror. And... You know, how is this government going to solve their other problems? And we could get into that. It's a long list of ineptitude, kleptocracy, yeah. and just institutionalized corruption that's eating away at the very foundation of the government of Islamic Republic. They have many problems, many problems. I don't think Joe Biden is going to solve them, even, even in the unlikely event he gets elected.
Yeah, I want to get into all of that a little bit later, including the access that they have here in the United States. But just to push back on what you just said, in terms of uh, Tehran's expectation out of Washington, it is it's quite a pivot if you want to uh, compare the Obama years and Trump's uh, dealing with Iran. So by that calculation, Biden was a vice president at that time. So why wouldn't Iran expect a more lenient approach? I mean, Trump is trying to stop terror, and President Obama gave them money to go on a shopping spree for terror. Our bureaucracy broke down. You know, I just said that bureaucracy sometimes breaks down. Uh, we're 244 years old, and uh, I think for eight years, uh, very clearly, and it's happened before, you know, occasionally in our history, our bureaucracy is broken down occasionally. And during the uh, President Obama, you know, I worked for President Obama, and I had the greatest honor of serving him directly. But uh, I disagreed with many of his policies, and President Obama had a different worldview, and his worldview is proven to have been absolutely wrong. You ask yourself, how did that happen? How did the uh, how did the administration of the United States become so friendly with the world's uh, top sponsor of terror, uh, a government that had actually killed American soldiers all over the world? How did that happen? Well. You know, you don't have to really go too far to uh, listen to Deputy National Security Advisor Ben Rhodes, who said we created an echo chamber. Yep. And that echo chamber uh, helped uh, spread all of this, and our bureaucracy broke down. Um, our bureaucracy all of a sudden got sensitive that, you know, we, we, we don't want to go to war. We, we just, you know, we, we hear a lot of things, and uh, they're not all substantiated. Uh, even though 90% is substantiated, that 10% that remains there is, is a question enough to be skeptical. That was wrong. All of that was wrong. But you know, how do we know? How do we know that we're not going to get? And I'm sorry to cut you off, but I I want to really get to the 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 real central point of this is to say, we're not hearing anything out of the the Biden Harris ticket. Nothing. The only thing they're running on is not being Donald Trump. It could be Mickey Mouse. And, you know, we're not hearing anything in terms of foreign policy. So how do we know or how does Tehran know by their calculation that they're not going to get another broken foreign policy, so to speak? We don't know. We don't know that, Lisa. We have no indication right now that the uh, coming administration is going to be uh, hostile. But, you know, I, I believe this firmly that uh, we have changed. This is, you know, we've learned those lessons. We can't forget history. And it's there. It's very unlikely that another cachet of uh, cash would be sent to Iran on pallets uh, mm -hmm. uh, in the dark of the night um, in, you know, large denominations. And uh, it's not going to happen again. It will never happen again. That story will not be repeated. And if Tehran is expecting a repeat of the good old days, it's not going to come. So uh, as far as uh, lifting sanctions, uh, you know, let me just say this, and I'll just say it briefly. I am of the, and I'm a student of these matters, as you mentioned earlier, for 40 years, I've been trying to understand things. I'm still trying to understand them. I would say confidently that a, a uh, rapprochement will be the kiss of death for the Islamic Republic. And that is the biggest miscalculation that the Islamic Republic can ever think about. The other thing is, you think the uh, IRGC, who uh, is now being talked about to be the next power source in, in, in Tehran, do you think they will want a normal, normalized relations? Do you think it's good for their health? 
they're they are thieves. They are, you know, that the, the word kleptocracy comes from the IRGC. It comes from the actions that they they've done. So there's a there is a complex there is a complex formula here that we've gone beyond the yes and no's uh, anymore. You know, things right. have changed. So I'm yeah. not just being optimistic. I'm being, you know, as objective as one can be. Right, and I think you know what what do we what do we say to those who look at even at this point, you know, if we don't appease them, we're going to have to go to war. Yeah, um, you know that that's not that's not that narrative doesn't really make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. We go to war. No, just like just like I said that sending cash is not going to happen. We're not going to have another Iraq war. It's not going to happen. Uh, history has brought us lessons, and and we don't need to do that. We don't need. There is no need to do that. Look at look at the Islamic government today, the Islamic Republic in Iran, as I call them. Look at them. Look at their bank account. Look at their oil extraction and oil sales. It's gone down. It's gone down. They just don't have any money. Don't listen to them. You know. These are whistling in the dark, saying we're going to go buy any weapons we want and sell any weapons we want to anyone. This is all big talk. They are not able to continue with what they have, the resources. And uh, war is not necessary. Uh, At the end of the day, Islamic Republic is going to be thinking rationally. And they're going to say to themselves, what am I going to do? They will continue to make as little change as they possibly can to look better and better and better. So if you were to forecast, you will see a general as the uh, head of the government in Tehran, and this general is going to say, guys, you know, if we want to continue making money off this stuff, we got to cool it down a little bit and not not do billions at a time. We should do maybe millions uh, (laughs) of of stealing for a while and and cool it down and start looking better and... uh, you know, leave the ladies alone. If they want to show a little bit of their hair, uh, let them do that. It's okay. And, uh, you know, what's going to happen is that the circle of kleptocracy is going to get tighter and tighter. It's going to be harder to steal. And when that happens, the system, which is basically standing on kleptocracy, because there's no belief. They don't believe in anything. It's not like, oh, good Muslims all want to do this. Good Muslims don't look at women's hair. You know, that's nonsense. And uh, it's going to get tighter and tighter. And then people are not going to be going along with the system. And you know what happens when the foundation gets shaky? What's on top will fall. And that's that's the uh, essential uh, essential physics of politics. It's just not going to work any other way. Yes. And, I, you know, I, I think um, Donald Trump has the same calculation you have. I want to get back to your bet about him winning. Uh, and he said, um, you know, China, Iran, they don't want to let me win. And I quote, he says, the first call I'll get after we win, the first call I get will be from Iran saying, let's make a deal. End quote. Is that true? Uh, yeah, I think I think that's, you know, diplomacy. Diplomacy is always on the table. Elisa and, mm-hmm. and your your viewers uh, know that, no, no uh, sound, reasonable mind is going to say, well, we're, we're going to cut diplomacy. We're never going to have... Diplomacy is always on the table. Why? Because there's a cost. There's a cost to confrontation. And governments always want to act rationally in their best interest. And 
what they do is they calculate that, you know, war is always the last option, that they're expensive and very uncertain. Wars uh, remain, you know, the results of, uh, of a war always is uncertain. Not just winning or losing. Look, we won in Iraq, but what happened? You know, look, we went to Afghanistan with, with such a force, but look what happened. We've been there 20 years and we're still there. So, no, uh, I, uh, I, I, don't think, I don't think war is, is something that's uh, in the cards. Uh, Islamic Republic is not a sustainable system. It's fractured, and these fissures in the system are so deep, so wide, that are not going to be repaired. The uh, Islamic Republic is not going to be there for too long. Look, Ayatollahs are old, and with the diet they keep, I hear they have <laughs> caviar for breakfast every morning. Um, uh, they're, they're not going to last that long. They're not going to last that long. So uh, this system is doomed to die. So how do we, you know, um, take advantage of the fissures that already exist? Let's get back to my initial question. What do we do about this 42-year-old problem? Uh, I know you're in touch with dozens of Iranians across um, the geographic, geopolitical, and, and, and social um, patchwork. Of, of Iran's population. I mean, we, we were introduced to it. When I say we, the mainstream media was introduced to a lot of those people, you know, whether they were um, from the bazaar or they were young women coming out without hijab or they were, you know, um, all, all sorts of people coming out into the protests and saying, you know, it's not just certain segment from Tehran, which was believed in the 2009 Green Revolution, but you know, there's a lot of us who are done with this system. So what, how can we take advantage of our allies in Iran? That's a very important point, Lisa, and you go right to the heart of what has been on my mind for a very long time. You know, for 40 years, I've heard this line of let's unite. Today, only unity. What does that mean, really? What does that mean? Who? Uniting who? If you're talking about people outside of Iran, what would that lead to? Let's say all the groups, all the opposition get together and they all are united with one voice against the Islamic Republic. What's going to happen then? The world remains the same. Europe wants to do business with Iran. The United States has been, like you said, between yes or no's for 40 years. Nothing would change. And we've got to take a look at what has happened. This slogan, which I believe it's a completely uh, empty slogan, uh, if it meant to be united for the people of Iran, absolutely correct and necessary. But if it's meant to unite people outside of Iran, it's been an exercise in futility. Whoever is promoting this notion is not going to get anywhere. Uh, unity is essential amongst people of Iran. They have to come to an understanding that it's better than this brutal tyranny of the Islamic Republic. They deserve better. And the good news is 70% of the population in Iran is under 40 years old now. And that means that they really don't remember how Iran was before. They never lived there. However, however, isn't it ironic and isn't it interesting that this young Iranians are very brave, very brave. If you take the performance 40 years of people outside of Iran and compare it to the performance of the people inside Iran, you would see, yes, in a corrupt, tyrannical, 
uh, government of Iran. People have been courageous. They've come to the streets. They've lost their lives. It's completely unfair to blame them for anything. They've fought valiantly against this monster, and they have not succeeded. Why? Because as people of Iran unite inside, then those outside should become their voice. They should reflect that. They should echo that. Instead of the echo chamber that uh, uh, Mr. Ben Rhodes uh, created, that echo chamber must be operated by real people like yourself and other people who have the means to talk to policymakers, decision makers, and educate them, really. Not lobbying, but educating them about the realities for too long the propaganda of the influencers in the United States, which I have to say have been extremely successful. Right. You cannot rule them out. You ask about eight years of Obama, when you sort everything out and you say, what was really present that wasn't present before? What was it that really made the decisions, the kind of policies that President Obama and his administration made, which we all know they were all wrong. All calculations were wrong. If there was one thing that they did that was right, it would be unfair for me not to mention it. But I cannot find even one, <laughs> even one act that I can say, you know, except for that one, it was good. No, all wrong. So uh, what do we do? We must change our ways. You know, they, they say the test of sanity is to believe that you cannot keep doing what you're doing and expecting right. a different right. result. So uh, we have to change. We have to change the way we look at the Islamic Republic. A couple of principles, you know, if you can change, if you can change Islam, you can change Islamic Republic. Very simple. There is no, absolutely no argument for reform within a system that is based on Islam. Islam is the only religion that comes together with its own form of government. Right. Separation of religion and state in Islam is not permitted. That is a violation. That is that is just not, it's forbidden. It can never happen. So mm -hmm. I don't know the argument of those who say, well, give it time, it will reform. No, this is not communism. This is Islam. Islam cannot change. So uh, that's what we have to do. You know, we could talk for hours about what mm -hmm. has gone wrong and what we've done uh, outside the country right. and what uh, has gone on inside the country and the role of governments uh, around the world. You know, uh, Russia is a uh, Russia is a declining economy. Russia, you know, you go out and, and try and find something to useful to buy that says made in Russia. Can you <laughs> find anything like that? You know, except except missiles and, you know, uh, exactly. fighter jets and bombs and things like that. Can you find something decent made in Russia? You know, I uh, somebody gave me a watch many, many years ago that was uh, apparently made in made in Russia. Uh, it broke. It just doesn't work. So you know, uh, it looked nice at the time, but you know, uh, Russians don't know how to build anything. Look at how they build nuclear plants. Look at their what they, what happened in India and Bhopal. You know. And in their own country, people are still suffering. So China, uh, China is a big country, and uh, you know Chinese people are wonderful people. I've been there many, many times on official trips as a diplomat, and personally, you know, uh, just just trying to learn what's going on in the country. Chinese are great people. Their government is evil. The Communist Party of China, and all they want to do is stay in power. 
that's all. So, uh, you know, I'm not no longer in government, so I can freely talk about anything using any words I like. And <laughs> I will not hesitate to say Communist Party of China is evil. So, yeah, we have to look at it differently. You got to, we got to, there's a Persian poem that says you got to wash your eyes and see the world a bit differently. And that's what we need to do. Yes. And um, I, I want to go inside and out because you mentioned that. Let's start by starting from Washington. Um, and this is a question I get asked a lot because um, I am an Iranian, um, but I'm also for sanctions uh, and I'm for the pressure campaign. Uh, and, you know, people think that that's hypocritical. How could you be for sanctions on your own people? Because obviously, you know, the, they trickle down in, into Main Street um, economy and uh, people have difficulty getting pharmaceutical supplies. And of course, that burden is, is passed on to the people. And my reaction is always, well, you can tell a lot by the protests and the slogans used in those protests. Uh, when you have Iranians saying, Iran, which translates into not Gaza, not Lebanon, I live only for Iran, it goes to show you know, a, a maturing of the protesters that now understand that the money that, that is supposed to be for them, regardless of where that comes from, that their government is prioritizing their global and, and terror endeavors to supporting and helping the local economies and to, to help the people of Iran. Um, so my point being, you know, how, how do we uh, explain both to the people of Iran, I think it's very important that that, that narrative is, is clarified. Um, and I, and I, I, I ironically think the people of Iran probably understand that more, more supportive of President Trump than the naysayers are in this country. Those people who are, you know, for human rights and for, you know, uh, separation of church and state, like you said. But when it comes to the Iranian regime, they're, they're all for it. How do we explain sanctions and and the pressure campaign to the naysayers? You know, this is a very difficult situation and it's a very easy explanation. Uh, the difficult situation is you and I, before being Iranian-Americans, we're human beings. You know, who, what human being would not be sad about just imagining someone on an operating table being deprived of a necessary, you know, medicine or right. a tool that would save their lives? Of course, of course, it just breaks anybody's hearts to think about such a situation. But that's that's the hard part. The easy part is there are no sanctions on medicine at all. If you if you look at that, there is a complexity. The complexity is that they're rocking this, and I have to be fair, they say yes, there's no sanction on medicine, but no bank would open a letter of credit, which is essential to transact because you know, the buyer doesn't know the seller, they have to go through the banking system, and banks are not willing to do that. Banks are not willing to do that because of the reputation risk that they have. They don't wish, they don't wish to have to explain that we had a permit, that this was okay. They don't want to do it. So it is a real problem. And I would be unfair if I didn't mention this technicality in this. So yes, there is no sanctions on medicine, but there are problems. However, it's an easy answer because the United States government has actually designated financial institutions who can, who can transact as an exception on medicine. That problem has been addressed in policy and has been removed. Now, why doesn't it happen? Oh, because you have the Islamic Republic in Tehran saying, no, not that bank. 
I want this bank to do it. Why? Mm -hmm. Because that bank is under the microscope of the United States, and we can't have any unusual, uh, you know, leakage from the transaction, money coming out, kickbacks, and stuff like that. It's not going to happen. So that's the problem. That's the problem. And uh, sanctions. Sanctions are uh, not a good thing on people. They will definitely have an impact. But let's take a deeper look. Let's say we lift all sanctions today. Let's say United States government and United Nations sanctions and European sanctions all go away today. Take a look at Tehran. Take a look at the country. Who's running the country? What's the banking system look like? The reason banks don't want to deal with Iranian banks is because Iranian banks are essentially bankrupt. They are broken. They are not operational. You know, Bank for International Settlement in Basel, Switzerland, sets the rules for all banks to have certain amount of capital, certain amount of reserves, certain safety and soundness in an operation. Iranian banks cannot qualify. I will challenge, I will challenge on this program and on any other means I have the Islamic government to open their banking systems to an internationally accepted audit and see how many banks in Iran are going to be able to pass. Lisa and the viewers know that, you know, giving a loan, giving a loan in banking has some rules. You can't just give a loan to someone because the banker has a responsibility to make sure that there is a reasonable assurance of repayment and a capability to do that. That's not how banks operate there. So sanctions are not, nobody is going to say sanctions are a good thing and they don't affect people. Of course they do. But let's say we take them off. They're all gone. How is the country going to be different with ineptitude, with institutionalized corruption, with a broken banking system, and with a country that's bankrupt altogether because the money has been siphoned out to individuals who are in the inner circle of the Ayatollahs. Look at the rumors on the accounts now. Mm -hmm. uh, some of it we know for sure. We see it. We know where these accounts are. And some of it we don't see because it's so well spread around the world. But sanctions are bad but they are necessary. Sanctions are necessary because of, unless the government of the Islamic Republic is deprived of one, making money, and two, continuing their institutionalized corruption, nothing will change for the people of Iran. Right, and you know, I think one of the things you alluded to is that access that the tentacles of the regime have um, in not only spreading narratives about sanctions, hurting you know individuals in Iran all over social media, you know, getting people to really be sympathetic to their cause. And, you know, um, just yesterday, there's a piece in National Review in Iran lobby in America. And I'm sure you and I both looked at this headline and thought, uh, you're about 20 years too late on this piece. But thank you for introducing the world to Nayak and other individuals like them that are doing the mullah's bidding in, in Washington, D.C., yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we're going to go back a little bit about, you know, uh, there's always more parts to a story than, than you could see with, with naked eye. Yeah, uh, let's go back to the situation that 20 years ago when this organization was, was formed. Uh, you have uh, a significant population of Iranians in the United States. And when you talk to them, uh, you know, they're not, they're not all the same you will see that some would say, look, you know, I'm not a political person. 
my grandma lives in Iran. I got to go back there once a year and see my grandma. And, you know, uh, I, I just don't want to get into politics. And I don't want to say anything that when I go back to Iran at, at the, you know, the airport there, I'm not going to stop and being placed in a room and, and interrogated. So the scary things that go after that. So this is the community that also complains, says, I don't understand this travel ban. Grandma cannot come here and visit, you know, grandchildren. And I'm very upset about that. I'm very upset at any policies. So uh, it's in such division in the community that another element must be considered. The government of Islamic Republic says, okay, so we don't have diplomatic relationships. Usually countries have something called an embassy in each other's, on each other's soil. Part of it is to issue visas for people who want to travel. But another part of the embassy does uh, something a lot more valuable and important for governments. And that is to gather information, to, to kind of have a sense of what's going on on the ground. And when they lost that, they can't have that. And of course, part of that is what what Mr. Zarif himself, uh, the foreign minister of Islamic Republic, claims that when I was in New York, I developed relationships. So that's a very important part of the function and embassy, in short. Now, Islamic Republic says, I don't have that. Now, what do I do? Okay, well, what do I have? I have the ability to, to uh, export my academics there, to go into academic institutions and start making arguments, however shallow they may be, uh, such, such as, you know, there is reform that's possible and all that complete, utter nonsense. Because, like I said, if you can reform Islam, you can reform Islamic Republic. They say, uh, you know, politics doesn't have a nature, absolutely, but religions do. And they just have these nonsensical arguments in the academia. Islamic government says, I can send business people to the United States. They have all these businesses and legitimate, no problem. What if I create a network? I create a network of support, and then I need an organization to weaponize that network. And this organization is going to... So, so people who worry about travel to Iran and grandma coming to visit, keep that. And then the government that's lost the diplomatic ties and now needs to create that network. And then, naturally, an organization pops up uh, by the help of people who used to hold power in the old uh, Ancien Regime in, uh, in, in Iran. Uh, and their family members, educated people, I actually ran into uh, a couple of uh, people who are extremely active and passionate about it. Uh, in Washington, D.C., it wasn't uh, uh, too difficult to see them. And they were making all this, you know, exaggerated stories about how the economy is growing and how the country is doing so well. And Iran is now the cradle of security in the region. So this organization comes about in such an environment and starts uh, growing. And, uh, you know, people notice, people notice the unusual nature that is going on, that here's uh, an entity that says, I want to educate people, fine. You know, uh, you can educate people. But actively, actively operates in both countries, has offices there, there are people there. And, you know, there are articles, there were articles uh, prior to what you uh, mentioned, National Review. Uh, there was an article some years ago, it was published in, on the Daily Beast, a very long article mm -hmm. that, you know, went, deep into the history. So people were aware of the unusual nature of the operation of such an organization that was so strongly advocating for terror sponsoring 
uh, essentially corrupt government of Islamic Republic, the tyranny that exists. And people, you know, said things. They, they protested. And, you know, the organization had a lot of money and a lot of support. Took it to court, actually, for, for a libel. And Lisa, the organization lost. In fact, they even appealed the court's decision. Mm -hmm. And they lost the appeal to the tune of $180,000 of expenses paid to the individual, the accused of damaging their the organization's reputation. Mm -hmm. So uh, you don't have to go too far. Just go back and read the court documents as to what the judges said about, you know, anybody can be accused of anything. Uh, there are many people who have been accused of things and, and uh, you know, uh, we know we know uh, many, including myself. Uh, yeah. But that the last verdict, the last verdict speaks to the to the finality of the judgment. And uh, yes. you could just read the read the background of the appeal as well as the initial complaint. You know, to know the nature of this organization. This organization is a friend of the Islamic Republic mm -hmm. by default or by design. If it's by design, if it's by design, it may be running into a violation of the laws of the United States. And I'm not a lawyer. I let lawyers decide on that. Mm -hmm. But if it's by default, it doesn't make any difference. They are actually together on the same team with the uh, oh. IRGC, IRGC person who uses his plastic baton imported from China or, or <laughs> North Korea to hit a young girl in the face. Right. They are the same team. They're on the same team. This organization is on the same team with the uh, with the smuggler brothers, as they call them, in the IRGC that brings opium from Afghanistan or other places into Iran and corrupts the lives of young exactly. people. They're on the same team. This exactly. organization is on the same team with that. Whether they have the intention to be on that team or not, oh, it doesn't matter. By default, they are. Yes, so, and we'll, so we'll continue. What, what we'll continue trying to to show that they're not for the people of Iran, and they never were. And speaking of the final verdict, I think you and I have always agreed on, you know, the final verdict or the the ultimate answer uh, to the forty two year old problem in Iran will come from the people in Iran, and. Um, I know that's where how you're spending your time, and I've spent most of my career doing the same, giving them a voice, giving them a platform, a voice for the voiceless, as we say. Um, but my last question to you is the, you know, the the ultimate, the crystal ball, um, crystal ball, but also some some strategy and logistics. Um, how can the people of Iran? There are all these powerful voices powerful anecdotes that you hear on a daily basis, that I hear on a daily basis, that motivate me, that, 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 that tell me that this individual, this young girl in some small town, that she can lead the revolution, or some young man who you know has aspirations to study engineering or whatever it may be. There are so many of these individuals, but how do they organize? That is the one ingredient that has been missing for 42 years, whether it's outside or inside, more importantly, inside. How do they organize to take Iran into the future? You know, I, I think you, you really point to an absolutely crucial, crucial question, and I'm happy to share a few thoughts on that. You're absolutely right. Uh, one of the reasons I say that the Islamic Republic is not a sustainable system anymore is because Iranians have woken up 
it's gone beyond that. The young people in Iran today, I wish I could tell you with a little bit more detail of the profiles of the individuals, but I'm afraid from a security point, I may be endangering their lives. I talk to them. They call me and they say to me, Mr. Kian, please tell people not to stop sanctions. We can take the pain. Let us take the pain. It's like having a necessary surgery. It's like having to take necessary bitter medicine. We will do it. Tell them to continue that. That's what I hear. That's what I hear from young people, especially. And I hear, look, we have no future. If you make a deal with them, please tell people, don't make a deal with them. Make a deal with us, with the Iranian right. people. That's, that's what I hear. So it's very simple, very simple. The United States and Europe, and I have better expectations from Europe. Uh, unfortunately, right. Europe has not been acting in the best long-term interest. They've gone for 15% growth in, in two-way trade between the two mm -hmm. countries. I won't name the country, but uh, if you're very interested, you can look up Germany. Um, and uh, they're, you know, they're, they're continuing those practices. We have to keep the pressure. People of Iran are asking us to do that. You know, I don't feel qualified to sit here on this program or anywhere and write a prescription for the people of Iran. The only thing I can do is listen to them, listen to them and hear what they say and be honest and tell people what I hear, not my own opinion, not people who benefit from one policy or another policy. Stay on the side of the people, reflect their voices, support all those who also reflect the voices of freedom-seeking people of Iran. And you know what? Like this, like right here, provide the counter-narrative. Sit here and tell the truth the best you know it. You know, it's a justified belief to me today, without doubt, that the Islamic Republic will not last. But it will be there for a bit longer if the United States makes another deal if we act in the same way that we've been acting this this false unity outside which means nothing what the people of iran expect is what anybody anywhere in the world expects a political group to do give me options that means competition give me ideas i want to see three or four people coming up with ideas of what they would do to get rid of this government first you know everybody comes forward and says if this government is removed you know there's going to be a beautiful Thing that we're going to be doing that and I want to be the, the, the guy right. that does it or right. the woman that does it, you know, we are not talking like that. It is not our place to talk like that. We right. ought to listen to them. We ought to reflect what they say. We ought to support everyone who supports that voice. You see, the, the, the tip of the arrow is pointed from Iran to the outside. It's not the other way around. We've got to listen to them. Right. And, you know, we could, we could continue doing this. It is our responsibility. We're all as humans, not just as Americans, because we have a constitution that tells us that, you know, all human beings are equal with inalienable uh, rights that they're born with. So yes. that's the principle we follow. Thank you so much. Well, unfortunately, we have to leave it here. Mr. Kion, thank you so much for your expertise, for your service to our nation, for your ongoing uh, endeavors, passion for this 
arena. Uh, I could speak to you for days, but unfortunately, we are out of time. And for those of you who want to sign up for my top 10 daily email, go to foreigndesknews.com slash newsletter. And to subscribe to our weekly podcast, go to YouTube slash Lisa Deftari. And I hope to see you next time.